This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Hey, Dan, what's going on? So today we're reading, uh, in my, my U.S. history class, we're reading a book by Kenneth C. Davis, uh, In the Shadow of Liberty. And it got me thinking, we're reading about Alfred Jackson, who was owned by Andrew Jackson. And Kenneth C. Davis uses people's names. And for, I don't know, I feel like in, in most history textbooks, we don't talk about, like, enslaved workers. We talk about them in the abstract, but not in the concrete. And it really started to make me think about, like, you know, the Hamilton song, uh, who lives, who dies, who tells your story about who's in, who's out uh, of history. And I want to put that to you. Who is in and who is out and how can we do better? It's such an important question as a social studies teacher, because oftentimes we get these standards and certain people are listed on the standards that we're supposed to address. I, I often think about people historically who were marginalized, whether it's women or, you know, African-Americans who were enslaved, because they were marginalized in their own time, they often don't get their stories told in history. And it's, and that's why it's so important to include social histories, more complex histories, and include lots of people who aren't the famous people typically, because some of them might've been famous if they'd had equal opportunity in their own day. If you were to look at in the, the U.S. history textbook that I teach in the, in the chapter on slavery, they first talk about abolitionists, which is interesting. Like, OK, so we want to start there, probably, I imagine. So, we, you know, students can identify with, I guess, the people in like the the, the main narrative, which I feel like it's white narrative. Right. Like and then they talk about Frederick Douglass. Yeah, it's always um, William Lloyd Garrison first, isn't it? It's like what? he's always like the first person to yeah, show it. As, yeah. if, as if a lot of people who were enslaved weren't already protesting the situation in their own ways. Yes. Yeah, but we don't get the agency of of African-Americans or enslaved the enslaved community. We don't really get that agency except for those like big events. And I don't know, I've just been I've been grappling with this um, teaching this U.S. history one class, but. Even with my friends teaching U.S. too, which is the you know the more modern day nineteenth century stuff. Yeah, I think you see the same thing in like the civil rights movement, whose stories are included and whose aren't. I often think of Bayard Rustin, who, you know, was because of his sexual orientation was pressured out of the movement for a period of time. And so, does that mean we push him out of our history too? Because you know he he didn't get to have these influence he did, and he still had a huge influence. He like was primary planner in the March on Washington and did a lot of stuff. But yeah, it's just complex of who to include, whose history are we telling? How are we telling it? I, I think that's a lot of the questions social studies educators wrestle with, right? Yeah. And I, I hope that we have a couple amazing guests on who can talk with us a little bit more about this in depth. Absolutely. And so we have two great guests who will be able to bring a lot of wisdom to this conversation. And so we would like to welcome to the podcast, Chris Busey and Irina Walker. Welcome. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks Thank for having you. us on. It's okay. great to have you. It is great to have you both. Can you each tell us a little bit about your backgrounds in education? My name is Irina Walker. I am a third year PhD candidate at the University of Central Florida. And my background is in elementary education. Social studies was always important to me, especially when teaching to my students. I taught at both a Title I school in a well-to-do affluent school. So I saw the need for social studies, especially in the elementary grades and especially for my students who were not necessarily prone to or exposed to social studies and then even more um, exposed to learning social studies from multiple perspectives. Do you feel like social studies was marginalized a bit in your school? That's what we often hear is how it's on the back burner. Were other teachers teaching social studies? Was it getting due time and, and thoughtfulness? No, it wasn't. In the state of Florida, and I think it's pretty much like this everywhere, the focus is on testing, testing. So a lot of my colleagues, as well as myself, we were not able to spend a lot of time on social studies. And so that's why the kids really didn't know. I'm Chris Busey, Christopher Busey. I go by Chris. Um, I am currently an assistant professor of curriculum teaching and teacher education at the University of Florida in Gainesville, where I'm also affiliate faculty for the Center for Latin American Studies, as well as an African American Studies program. Similar to Irina, I have a wealth of teaching experience uh, in Florida at both the middle school and high school level. I've also taught briefly in the Bronx, as well as in Spain. Uh, which was certainly a rewarding experience. Uh, That's, uh, we're in Spain. So I was in a small town called uh, Miranda de Ebro, which is in Burgos. Are you familiar with the province provinces? Not at all. Okay, so <laughs> I was like on the border of the Basque region okay. in, Casti- in Castilla and Leon. So it was definitely, definitely an interesting uh, experience, especially being the only... Uh, maybe one of the few, a handful of of, of black people in the village. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, yeah, certainly an experience. I had hair back then too. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel like you you grew and they grew from that experience of teaching abroad? For me, it was certainly enlightening in the sense I had always been interested in. And issues of race and racism from a more global perspective. And over there, I had the opportunity to both, unfortunately, experience it and see it, but also see some of the ways in which it manifests itself differently. Obviously, it's a different social political context. A lot of the racism there is, is couched in narratives of, of xenophobia. And, and so it was rather prominent, especially in the village that I lived in. That's not to paint everyone in the village within a negative light either. When I first arrived at the school first day, uh, no one could believe who I was. Uh, They assumed, I was actually told, we thought we were going to get a white guy who was like a surfer. I'm like, nah, that's definitely not me, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, you know, that, that certainly made for an interesting experience, but the school that I taught at over in Spain, I guess it would equate to what we would call a Title I school here. Uh, less than 12% of the, 
of the student population were actually Spaniard. So I taught a lot of students who were migrant students from Morocco, uh, from Ecuador, Romania. And it, it was interesting because it created this bond, almost like a natural bond where they were immediately receptive to some of the critical pedagogy that I implemented in this setting. And so, for example, I used a lot of hip hop in the classroom. You listen to one hip hop song every day from like the Fugees. And, you know, I would have like the fourth or fifth grade students pick out some of the words that they knew. And based on the words that they were able to, you know, pick out of the song, we would talk about some of the themes behind the songs. And so simple things like that gave the students and I uh, a bonding experience, uh, so to say, that was unique from what some of the other kids in the village had. That's great. That is really cool. Music is, is and dance and food are such important parts of our identities in such a good way that we can learn. Um, I have my in my social studies methods class, I have my students uh, try to identify a food or a drink or something that we can have on our snack time or like on our break time as just a snack, but they have to give me a social studies component of it. So if they bring something generic from the store, then they have to like investigate where it came from. So give me geography or stuff. But uh, it's cool when it's something from your, from your family or some music you like or things like that. It always really enriches and allows us to get to know each other in just kind of authentic ways. Right, right. That's a good idea, actually. I'm going to actually uh, steal that <laughs> with my social studies methods class, if that's okay. And if you didn't catch it, they bring me like food and drinks that I get to. So. <laughs> I did not catch that. So, brilliant. No, it, do, it does make for an interesting uh, bonding experience or, you know, at, at least it's a starting point in establishing some sort of connection with students. And we, we have to move beyond the music and those small little connections, obviously. But it does help you know, provide some sort of gateway into some of the conversations you can have with students. Absolutely. Well, and the reason we're having you two on today is because you two wrote an excellent article that was published in Theory and Research in Social Education titled, A Dream in a Bus, Black Critical Patriotism in Elementary Social Studies. So first off, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's no small feat to be published in TRSC. Um, even though we have lots of people on our episodes, there's a lot of rejected uh, uh, papers that we don't <laughs> see. So do you, you I know firsthand. <laughs> can you guys tell us a little bit about uh, what made your paper so good and why it got published? What did you guys write about? Conceptualizing and dreaming up the idea for the paper. No, no pun intended there, uh, dreaming up the idea for the paper. Um, <laughs> You know, this was something that I've always uh, been interested in, but some of the more recent events, especially concerning NFL football players protesting Colin Kaepernick in particular, really got me to thinking about some of the ways in which he is utilizing his his rights, you know, um, to speak out about police brutality and issues of systemic racism in the U.S., However, as we know, with some of the backlash to, the, uh, to that, a lot of Colin Kaepernick's actions are not viewed as patriotic, so to say, when in reality, uh, what he is doing is in alignment with normal narratives of patriotism, so to say, in the U.S., you know, using your, your First Amendment right to speak up about issues of inequity and inequality in the U.S., so those current events led you into um, thinking about how this is addressed in elementary social studies? 
elementary social studies, um, one of the reasons we wanted to focus on that area um, is because, you know, we wanted to, I know, and I know Chris know um, the importance of um, starting or building that foundation. And so, you know, when we look at we look at students in middle school and high school and we look at what they're, they know and their perceptions of social studies. We said, OK, well, let's start with the elementary grades. Let's start with the younger kids and let's see what is being taught. It's going to e- either create a positive perception about social studies, those multiple perspectives, or it's going to paint that negative image in the student's head, and they're not going to want to learn about social studies because they don't see or they cannot relate to individuals who resemble them or who looks like them. Or So that's why, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to look at the elementary students. Right. And I, I would build upon what Irina is saying we directed it towards the elementary level, but that second part of the paper, or you can also say the first part of the paper rather, was concerned with how we theorize black critical patriotism. And so we applied that to the elementary standards, but also more importantly, we wanted to sort of conceptualize a a theory that would be transferable across multiple research investigations, as well as informing about the way we think about Blackness, Black citizenship, and the way in which Black citizenship is both enacted and received. You presented the concept of Black critical patriotism at NCSS two years ago. My department head had actually been to your presentation and just loved it and was talking about it. Do you mind explaining what Black critical patriotism is and and why it's so important to use those terms? And thinking of Black critical patriotism, and this is where some of the reviewer comments were really helpful as well, sort of helping us flesh out this theory. What we have in the social studies, and and I'll start here and kind of lead into my description of Black critical patriotism. What we have in social studies education currently is a twofold conceptualization of patriotism. So when you look at a lot of Westheimer's work, which has dealt with patriotism, as well as Kislin's work, um, you see sort of an, an, an adherence to authoritarian patriotism, which is sort of that unquestioned loyalty to the state and its institutions and its symbols. Democratic patriotism is more derived from caring about the people, the values, and the principles that underlie democracy, and it encourages free speech, civil liberties, and social equality. That sounds really ideal, but when we look at the ways in which Black actors, especially Black civic actors, have been conceptualized and contextualized within discourses of patriotism. Neither one of those conceptualizations are applicable to Black acts, right? And so this sort of led to the framing of Black critical patriotism, which is rooted in three tenets. And these tenets are are not finite. They're not concrete, so to say. They're certainly amendable in how we think about them and apply them. But really thinking about the Black critical patriot among three different lines in the sense of the ways in which we use physical resistance as an act of patriotism, the way that we enact Black political thought as a form of patriotism, and lastly, Black critical intellectual thought as a form of patriotism. And so this idea of Black critical patriotism is really 
Um, it sits at the, the nexus of these three ideas. Recently, I've been thinking about more effective ways to teach the civil rights movement, um, the African-American civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And I've kind of thought about the importance of tactics and understanding how tactical the movement was in finding various forms of points of resistance, whether it's from sit-ins to, um, you know, Freedom Rides and, and Freedom Summer to marches. There's just so many points of it. I think what I was missing is how important intellectual thought is to driving forward ideas of equality. Martin Luther King's a great example of he just his intellectual thought is completely reduced into these simple phrases and we lose who he was sometimes into Dodge Ram commercials during the Super Bowl. <laughs> oh man, that commercial. <laughs> I just thought about all of the quotes from him you could have layered over that because he critiqued capitalism regularly. Critique car salesmen. Like, <laughs> in the same speech. Yeah. Yeah, that man, that commercial, uh, as I was watching it last night, I became infuriated, man. And you know, that just speaks to the point, sort of one of the underlying points of our article. We take black civic actors, right? Light King, Light Rosa Parks. And we sanitize what they stood for. We, you know, we sanitize their their efforts and their exploits to fit within a Dodge Ram commercial. <laughs> the the opening of our article, um, we you know, quote the barbershop. And, you know, I remember when that movie first came out and, you know, the line where, you know, Rosa Parks didn't do anything. but say blah, blah, blah. And I remember it was like really big, like a lot of people were upset about that. So even getting students to understand, one, she didn't just sit her, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then two, helping students to understand that it wasn't that, um, okay, she was just being defiant and, you know, she was just break. She was standing up, you know, for a purpose and, 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 for a reason. So, you know, really helping students to really get to the core and understand her reasoning behind her refusal. And as Chris stated, you know, oftentimes it's sanitized and it's just looked at as, oh, she was this woman who refused to to go by the rules. The tired seamstress narrative, right? Um, right. right. Right, right. I, I love this picture. I think I, I f um, first saw it in a Herbert Cole article that critiques the, the myths of Ro Rosa Parks. And there's a picture of her in like 1980s protesting apartheid. And I love that picture because it just and I like to show it to students and not tell them who it is and ask them what they think's happening because it just immediately kind of is this it's so distant and it just shows how lifelong her activism was. Right. And it's global in nature as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. What did you analyze in the article? Um, how did you understand w whether black critical patriotism was present at all or what visions of patriotism were present in elementary social studies? So what we did was we went through all 50 states. Um, Chris took 25, I took 25, and we literally went line by line. And we we wanted to um, extrapolate those key words that we were seeing in the standards. So any word that we saw or any individual or event that we saw that was repetitive, those were those were the words or the terms that we used to build upon and to identify, okay, this is what's being taught. That, that's how we started with our analytical piece. 
that's some serious work going through every yeah. set of standards. Wow. Oh man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then we went back. And, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah, we went back and we actually um, <laughs> did it again. Chris actually told me, he's like, Irina, we have to go back and do it. I'm like, what? Are you serious? <laughs> we really wanted to, you know, ensure that what we were presenting was accurate. And so, so that's how we came about the, with the, the first piece of, extrapolating those standards and really looking at what, you know, what was what. And what did you notice when you did all that work? Well, King and Parks. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks were pretty much mentioned in every state and even the states who did not mention other individuals, they would definitely mention King and Parks. What we also noticed too was when we look at when we looked at the deep south states. So we're talking about, you know, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina, and so forth. We noticed that a lot of individuals, I guess names that you normally don't hear, especially in elementary social studies, we we saw those names. So when you look at Emmett Till, you know, we saw those names in Mississippi and we didn't necessarily see those events or those names in other states. So that's that's one thing that we noticed in the deep south states. Where did you usually find these? Is this under like a fourth grade introduction to U.S. history or state history? Like where were these names listed within the standards? Right. So most of the state standards that were rele relevant to our analysis emerged in the fourth and fifth grade. What we noticed across this analysis was that across the country, fourth grade standards were more relevant to local history, which is getting to what Irina was saying. So in the deep south states, especially those states that were largely relevant to the mid 20th century freedom movement, you saw some of those names like Stokely Carmichael, who you don't often see in other state standards, right? And so there was certainly a localized aspect to some of the names and actions that we saw emerge from these standards. In addition to that, like I said, we saw fourth and fifth grade primarily in terms of where these names, actions, events sort of emerged or manifested themselves. What do you think you learned about what students potentially learn in elementary school based on these standards? Well, when you go back to some of the more foundational research in terms of who is prevalent um, or who students rather perceive as heroes or the most popular historical figures, uh, Weinberg and Montesano's 2008 study demonstrated that most students, high school students, see King, Parks, and Tubman as three of the most famous Americans. And when you align that with the findings from our study, it's rather clear that some of these conceptualizations of Black critical patriotism and who are significant Black actors in, in U.S. history starts at the elementary level. So that was one of the sort of connections that we made to prior research. I found it pretty surprising. There were absolutely no mentioning at all of any type of blacks. Are you talking about outside? There was, there was no mention of, of other African-Americans outside of King and Parks and Tubman or? No mentioning of at, none at all. Not at all. Like, right. right. Yeah, there were several states where uh, black individuals are just completely. Oh, no, the whole standards yeah. had nothing. 
Right. 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 Oh, wow. right. Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. That seems yeah. like a problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. You know, one of the one of the things I'll say uh, regarding the implications of our study as well is when you look at the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement in, in the U.S. and some of the resistance to that movement, right, where anti-racism can be painted as being racist, um, so to say. How is it that we would think differently about the Black Lives Matter movement as well as other Black social movements throughout U.S. history, like the Black Panther Party and some of their efforts, as well as more contemporary Black social movements, if we were to more accurately depict what it was that Black historical actors were doing without sanitizing their, their narratives and their contributions to fit within the master script. And so that's, that's also one of the implications that uh, we pointed out in this paper as well. The misunderstandings of King are unreal. Absolutely. You know, that's one of the things that uh, Angela Davis, I was recent, recently reading uh, her, her new book, um, uh, Freedom is a Constant Struggle, and she spoke about King in particular. And she know that how uh, few people, few Americans are aware of his Riverside Church speech, which was which targeted American participation in Vietnam and some of the ways that he became that he came to recognize the intersections of the black liberation movement with the campaign to end the war in Vietnam. And so, again, we're, we're sanitizing um, our black historical actors when in reality, these were people with radical thoughts and radical viewpoints. So what advice would you give to elementary school teachers who want to do better, who want to make sure that their curriculum and their standards are more uh, inclusive? Well, first, I would definitely encourage teachers to, for one, this is with anything, not just, you know, um, being inclusive um, with their social studies curriculum, but knowing your topic. You know, knowing, um, um, having confidence and knowing your topic and what you're teaching to students, because I think in, in speaking to teachers, primarily elementary teachers, a lot of times when the conversations of race or race relations comes up, they they don't really like to discuss it in the classroom because they don't know how to or they they're not comfortable with the topic. Definitely, you know, no, knowing, knowing your topic, you know, researching studying, you know, and then being sensitive to the needs of all learners. I actually met with um, individual um, about a week ago, and she was sharing with me that a friend of hers shared with her that her child's teacher, she was doing some activity in class. And so she want, she asked all of the, and this is the elementary classroom, she asked all of the white students to stand or to get in one group, and then all of the black students to get in one group. Well, this little girl, she got in the group with the black students. And she said, the teacher said to her, oh, no, 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 sweetie, you're over in this group. You're in the white group. And she's like, no, I'm not. You know, she the, the little girl knew that she was black. And I mean, she was trying to convince this little girl that she did not belong. You know, being no, knowing your knowing your kids. You hear horror stories about simulations and, you know, attempts where I'm sure the teachers are want to do something right, but they're not. And I think that's where. 
Um, there's a lot of people who've thought through this, like you two, who have written on it. And there's lots of great articles, Teaching Tolerance, um, even more recently, has done a lot of great work on on how do you teach difficult issues. They're, they're, um, yeah. We're going to do an episode soon on their curriculum standards they've created for teaching slavery. And yes. so turning to those sources can be so helpful. And I also think about books, finding, reaching out to people who are knowledgeable in the area and asking them what are good picture books, what are good young adult books to bring into the class. I remember just seeing Nicole, right. Nicole Hannah-Jones uh, Twitter yesterday. And Nicole Hannah-Jones is like the best reporter on desegregation and resegregation issues. And her child was wearing those. If you've seen those who is and how what, what was books, if you guys seen like who is like George mm-hmm. Washington, who is, and they have a lot of good ones. And her child was reading uh, what was the Underground Railroad. And, you know, um, bringing things like that in to initiate the discussions can be really helpful, but it also has a lot of detail. But her kid realized the street they named on, lived on, was named after a slaveholding president, which she didn't know. And that's probably, you know, allowed her to have a really... Um, important conversation with their daughter about history. And so I, I always encourage my um, pre-service teachers, if you don't know, then reach out to people who do and bring in good materials to start sure. you know, uh, to read. Uh, you know, I, I also think part of uh, the implications for teaching um, are rooted in, I'm going to borrow from my friend, uh, LeGarrett King, instead of simply teaching about black people, uh, we also have to teach through black people's. Um, experiences, right? And that that then presents us with a, a different tension in the sense that we are requiring that teachers grapple with critical issues in their classroom at all levels, not just the elementary level. And so acknowledging this aspect of Black history, in particular Black critical patriotism, means that we have to have conversations about systemic and institutionalized racism to understand what it was that they were acting against. And so I think that's part of it. I think the second part of it, too, is this notion of remembering, which we mentioned in our paper as well, in terms of infusing Black critical patriotism into their teaching, in the sense that we have to paint historical actors, Black historical actors, especially those who we tend to heroify, like King and Parks, in a more collective uh, way, situating them within a collective, a broader collective movement speaks more accurately to the Black tradition of political resistance. That makes me think of the Children's March and how, you know, one of many instances where MLK was very hesitant about whether they should go forward. And a lot of the leaders in the community had already said, too late, you know, this is going to (laughs) happen. That happened numerous times during the movement, which points out that it wasn't always Martin Luther King leading. I mean, he was part of a movement. Sometimes he led, sometimes he followed, but he was part of a sure. complex movement with a lot of debates. Absolutely. But teaching students, um, elementary students especially, that it was individuals from all racial groups. She was one of the individuals who participated in the um, in the sit-ins. And she talks about how you know, a lot of people when they see her face, she she was a white, she is a white woman, she's still alive. Um, when they see her face, you know, they're surprised. And um, she go into these elementary classrooms, and students are surprised. You know, they're expecting, you know, you, you know, you participated, you marched, and you know, teaching students that individuals from all racial groups played a played a part um, as well. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much for for joining us. I think to help us uh, think a lot about what the curriculum is and in elementary and what visions of patriotism and whose visions are being taught and pushed in elementary and, and how we can do a better job of that. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. So Chris and Arena, where can our listeners find you uh, or your work online or in other spaces? You can definitely um, find our article on the um, TRSE website. Yeah, you can. Yes. <laughs> you can reach me at Twitter. You can tweet at Dr. Busey, and the doctor is spelled out. In addition to Facebook, I am, again, at the University of Florida. And this is a good opportunity for me to plug the CUFA 2018 annual conference. I am the program chair uh, for the annual conference, uh, annual CUFA conference. Congratulations. (laughs) I have no doubt it's going to be an exceptional uh, conference with with Chris, you know, at the helm. So you are not going to want to miss out. So attend CUFA, which is in, uh, where are we at next year? It's it's in Chicago. Chicago. Uh, November 28th to the 30th. (laughs) And uh, this conference in particular, I have tried to create space for teachers, for community activists, for those of us who have traditionally been excluded from KUFA to join these conversations of resistance and social studies education. So there we go. All right. We'll hopefully have everybody there. And then thank thank you two again for joining us. We really enjoyed the conversation. Thank Thank you. you. We are all about sharing the learning at the Visions of Education podcast. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on the Facebook and maybe in other spaces, maybe. Uh, And of course, and if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off.